Welcome to the Give to Profit podcast, the podcast that inspires business owners, entrepreneurs and leaders to turn their business into a profitable force for good. During our weekly episodes, you'll hear business leaders and entrepreneurs share how they put social impact at the heart of their business and the many benefits that come from doing this. You can find full show notes for today's show and additional resources at givetoprofit.com. And of course, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and Stitcher, where it would also be great if you could leave us a rating and review. For every review this month, we'll be sponsoring a child to go to school for a day in Cambodia. And so now, here's your host, business mentor, speaker and author, Alison McKenzie. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Give to Profit podcast show. This is your host, Alison McKenzie, and I'm delighted to be with you again today. Thanks for tuning in. Today I'm interviewing someone who was one of the very first people to support the concept of Give to Profit, albeit when it was in its infancy. And that's because he was a speaker on my Give to Profit fundraising summit almost five years ago. And more recently, I had the pleasure to spend some time with him when he was in Edinburgh a few weeks ago as part of a European tour doing what he does. Today, I'm speaking to Tad Hargrave from Marketing for Hippies. And we're going to have a general conversation around give to profit, doing good, both personally and in our businesses. So welcome, Tad. It's lovely to have you on the show. Thank you so much. It's really good to be here. It's hard to believe it's been all those years since you started. I know, I know. And in some ways, it feels like it's taken a long time to come to life. But I do really appreciate that support very early on when I was still really trying to work out what it was all about. (laughs) So for those of you who don't know you, I'm just going to share a little bit about you with our audience. And so Tad is a hippie who developed a knack for marketing and then learned how to be a hippie again. Despite many years in the non-profit and activist world, he finally had to admit he was a marketing nerd and in the end he became a marketing coach for hippies and that's I think where we first connected and met and for over a decade Tad has been touring his marketing workshops around Canada and more recently around Europe bringing refreshing and unorthodox ideas to conscious entrepreneurs and green businesses that help them grow their organizations and businesses without selling their souls and for anybody who doesn't know Tad He seriously is just one of the best people out there that is really teaching us about how we can run ethical um, businesses. Tad currently lives in Edmonton, Canada and has Scottish ancestors and also co-founded a local community initiative called The Local Good that helps people in and around Edmonton live a green, local and sustainable lifestyle. So Tad, I always like to just start by asking my guests how have you become the person that you are today? Oh, my. <laughs> That's a very big question. Um, well, boy, there's a lot of levels to answer that on. I mean, the first is just to wonder if I really have any idea what sort of person I am at all. It's often, there's the old Irish proverb that friend's eye is a good looking glass. And so it might be that we see other people more clearly than we see ourselves sometimes, or other people can see us more clearly than we see ourselves. So yeah, I'm not entirely sure or convinced that I'm so clear about who I am. And in terms of how I became who I am, it occurs to me very strongly that the things that have most shaped any of our lives are actually not personal at all, but are cultural. 
I was talking with somebody the other day and said to him, I think that the Highland clearances probably have more to do with who I am or that I am than anything that that's happened in my life personally. There's so much in the way that we live our lives that is deeply culturally informed and we mistake it as personal, but it's not. It's ways that have been handed down generation after generation, Western culture, or at least in my corner of the world. For me, it seems to be so. And it's very easy to imagine that that's me, Mm. inseparable from me. And that can seem like a good idea when it's working out, but for all of our afflictions and troubles and struggles, particular unique peccadillos that don't always, that work so well for us. There's a strange way that we have made individuals bear the brunt of the culture. Mm -hmm. So people behave badly in certain ways in this culture, and we decide that that's who they are, that's them. But there's a very good chance that much of what informed them doing that thing is much older than they are, is deeply cultural. And not just culture in terms of something that happened to them as a child or something that happened to their ancestors, but something maybe that never happened is often the case. Sometimes the absence of something can be more impactful than the the presence of something. So yeah, all that to say, it's a mystery to me. I don't know. (laughs) So you mentioned the Highland clearances there. And of course, being Mm -hmm. a Scot, you know, that's something that is just embedded in part of our culture and our history and what we're taught from a very young age. What is it that you feel that has maybe shaped who you are, even if you're Mm -hmm. not quite sure who you are? What is it specifically from that that you think has shaped you? Well, I mean, the fact that we're on a call and I'm in Canada and you're in Scotland is probably the the big one. (laughs) So many people from Scotland, from Ireland, you know, all over Europe came to North America uh, fleeing something, running from something. Ireland, potato famine, Scotland, the Highland clearances poverty, famine, war all over the place. People didn't come to North America just because it's like, oh, look, mosquitoes. What a great idea. <laughs> Let's go. Let's go there. Get eaten alive in the summers and freeze to death. In the So people came running from something. So I feel like that's one way. Another way is that what was driving the Highland clearances was a certain compulsion towards modernization a very similar attitude and set of practices that was brought to the indigenous people here, the sense of, God, those hills, they're just lying there, empty, fallow. They could be used Mm. better. You could maximize the profitability of those hills if you put sheep on them, not people. And so we push people off, you know, the land entirely or give them some little bits of land by the ocean, but they've never even, they don't know how to fish or don't have any equipment or So this word potential gets used a lot in the modern world, maximizing potential. But of course, there's that scorpion's tail of potential, which is never quite satisfied with the present because there's always more. And it's also what justified the um, colonization of North America. You know, the Pope put out this terra nullius, he called it, and basically saying, well, it's empty and they're not really using the land anyways. They're not maximizing the potential of this land. So you can look, I mean, as much as I feel this affinity to and connection with my Scottish ancestors, there's also real shadowy sides of Scotland too, and the way that it has participated in empire and the spreading of that around the world. So yes, you get all this and you get capitalism that emerges and that certainly Scotland had significant role in spreading around the world. Mm-hmm. And so then here I am as a marketing coach, helping people in a capitalist system that I didn't invent that I don't particularly think is a great idea. And yet 
here we are, here I am on somebody else's land in a city named Edmonton that's named after a place in London that I think it's up for grabs if the discovery of North America has ever happened. Because yeah. nothing got discovered here. It's just Europe got imported and put down here. I mean, you can look at all the place names in Canada, or almost all of them. And it's, of course, almost all European names and names of places in Europe or that kind of thing. And so that's the context that I live in. And minus the Highland clearances, I wouldn't be born. <laughs> but, you know, magically, if, if uh, somehow my parents had still met up there, yeah, I'd still be living probably in the Highlands. Yeah. So everything in my life, it's hard to imagine one thing that's not, that's one strand of my ancestry and there's others too, but it's hard to imagine anything that's not touched by that. Yeah, totally. And especially in today's modern world, it's so important to remember exactly if we have come from and look at what has happened in the past. And, you know, when I, I can remember when I was younger, I couldn't get the point of history. You know, I used to love geography, but and it's only as I've got old with age that I've just, I personally have appreciated more and more the importance of really understanding more about our past, understanding and respecting more about those who fought for us, who stood up for us, but actually also as you say, recognising what I now talk about, what I personally don't think of as having made Britain great, the whole yeah. hypocrisy of, of the whole situation, yet so many people in our world just don't seem to be aware of that at all. So what sparked the more activist side of you then? What is that about? Because one of the reasons why I really feel I resonate, not just with what you do in terms of your marketing, but really with what I see of you as a person through watching videos, through meeting with you, through what you share with social media and things. Mm -hmm. It's resonating with so many of the different things that I see you having an opinion on and taking a stand for. So what, what sparked that? I don't know. You know, I went to Waldorf school as a kid. So, you know, there was certainly a, some sort of cultural, spiritual openness on, on the part of my parents, which I'm sure was was there in the background a lot. And in high school, went to an arts high school. So there's all sorts of activism stuff, but it wasn't very deep, I don't think. Or it was a very deep connection. I was in the activist group in high school, but I don't think I did much with it. Had some interest in the world, but I just, I suppose like most teenagers, was just trying to figure out where I fit. And I liked the kind of people who hung out around those groups and was drawn to it. But um, after high school, I went to work for a franchise of a leadership development company in the world, or in Edmonton, and that had a sort of global presence to it. And getting involved in the marketing and sales, there was some kind of innocence or authenticity or sincerity that got lost in that process where I was doing all this aggressive, pushy sales stuff. And couldn't sleep well at night. I was getting feedback from people that I was coming across as slick and slimy. It was really hard, but I was so had kind of drunk that Kool-Aid. And I thought that was the only way that's what you have to do. And so I just will try to be a little less slick and slimy, but you still have to use the same techniques, it seemed to me. And ended up a fellow named John Robbins, who wrote a book, Diet for New America, came to Edmonton to do a talk. And I went to it and it was so profoundly moving. And, and he and his wife, Deo, talked about their son, Ocean, who just started this thing called the Yes Tour. And they did uh, high school presentations around environmental issues and something about it. it was just one of those moments in my life where everything clicks. And I just thought, oh my God, that's exactly, that's what I want to do. So I talked with Deo after and she gave me some info and I reached out to the folks. And sure enough, a few years later, I ended up moving down to Santa Cruz and was working with this group and doing some fundraising and leading summer camps. And summer camps were a very, you know, environmental social justice theme. But when I went down, I was Christian capitalist, just obsessed with purity. Though for me, it was more in that Christian capitalist and vegan vein. And I just started hearing so many stories 
from other people about what was happening in their communities. And I remember when I came down to Santa Cruz, I was just like, well, the system works. You just have to read Adam Smith right. He was really a good man. And so we're just got to make capitalism work better. And we've never really seen it work and it would be beautiful. And so the system basically works. You just have to work the system, that kind of attitude. And then after years of hearing so many stories and we started having more international participants at our gatherings and I started a project called the Jams and it's uh, people want to check it out. It's actually still going. I was just hanging out with a woman who runs it now called yesworld.org. But we called, I call them these jams, bringing together leading young activists and change makers for like a, a week of community building and skill sharing and learning from each other. And, you know, it's so funny because I started it because there was some part of me that wanted to be famous. I was drawn to the glamour of this you know, young activists who were sort of famous, but I hadn't done anything. <laughs> worthwhile to like be considered to be a part of that group. But I thought, well, if I hosted a gathering to bring them together, then uh -huh, then I'll fit in. And it worked. <laughs> it, it, it happened. But the irony of it, the beauty of it is, I don't know, life can sometimes even use your bullshit for your own healing. And so even my own the kind of hunger around being famous was used in service of life somehow because Sure, I was doing those events and hanging out with all these amazing young leaders, but now I'm also hearing their stories and what's going on in their communities. And all of my faith in capitalism is slowly starting to crumble. And soon I find myself saying, well, you know, the system has some big troubles. There's a lot of work that's needed to fix it. And then after a few more years of that, it was just, ah, the system is completely broken and uh, it's irredeemable. And <laughs> so then after that, I just kind of got into a few years of hanging out with the anarchist scene and protests and all of that. I still had this interest in marketing. I finally clicked that. I said, oh, yeah, wait, wait. A mom and a pop shop is different than a multinational corporation. This is not the same mm. kind of capitalism. And my friend who wants to have a solar power business or start a permaculture thing, this is different. For some reason, that hadn't really clicked. And then when it did, that's when I started doing the business and trying to, because so many of my friends were trying to do great things, but their marketing ideas were so weak. And so that's how that happened. And that's brilliant how those two different parts have come together and yes it has been definitely a journey by the sounds of things mm -hmm. and I mean one of the things I quite often talk about is that I see business as an opportunity to be kind hmm. and for so long a lot of businesses have been perceived negatively in fact I, I was at an event in Edinburgh um, on Saturday night I there was a sleep out in the centre of Edinburgh you know Princess Street Gardens underneath the castle there was 8,000 of us slept outside in freezing cold but it was minus six and it was all in aid of raising money and raising awareness around homelessness in uh. Scotland with a view to eliminating it. Uh -huh. And I've completely forgotten where I was going to go with this. Oh, <laughs> oh, I know what it was. I know what it was. And it was great because the guy who, Josh Littlejohn, set up this cafe called Social Bite, it's now very much, you know, at the heart of it is all about this campaign to eliminate homelessness from Scotland. And it was great to hear him on stage at one point as he was thanking everybody for being involved. And he commented on how businesses have for so long been perceived as bad and then put up the slide of all the businesses that were supporting, you know, this cause and the number of people sleeping out who were business owners. And then he went on to the banks and then went on to politicians mm -hmm. and said, look, it's about time we all came together. And it was so good to hear that at what is definitely, I think, the start of a movement. What, what happened on Saturday night was very mm. humbling and incredible in so many ways. 
But I'd like to think we're at a point now where people are questioning the way things have been done in the way that you have quite a few years ago now in the marketing mm-hmm. side of things. And there is a growing tide of people that are actually just wanting to do good. And it doesn't matter who we are or what we're doing for our jobs or our businesses. But it's actually about connecting it and pulling together and that the world needs us more than ever to do that. Yeah, what strikes me is, I mean, harkening back to the first part of our conversation is we all live in this culture. We live in this system that runs a certain way. And it's so easy for people to take it on themselves as, oh, I'm bad for being in business or wouldn't want to be in business because it's bad or all of these things. And, and yet it's not so personal as that, I don't think. It's not so personal as this is about you. It's that, yes, there is this larger structure. And ultimately, that is going to need to change. I don't think we can have this capitalist system and equity in the world. But what do we do in the meantime? We've still got to pay the bills. We've still got to pay the rent. So I just think this speaks to the moment in history. We're in an immense amount of work. And almost certainly, it'll be intergenerational, which is there's a need to, we're trying to build up something new. And that something new can't be just rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. It can't be that. The new thing can't be just this capitalism light is not going to cut it in terms of what's needed. Like, oh, let's just 10% improvement in conditions for the homeless people is not particularly inspiring. Let's be a little less shittier to the planet. It's not that that's needed. There's something so new. So we're in the process of building up something new, which means new structures, Literally, it's like new buildings, new infrastructure that's needed. It's new ways of thinking about the world. I think about the shift from punitive to restorative justice. You need a whole other way of talking and you need different language. There's a whole different worldview behind it. In all these ways, in education, in health, in security, in economics, there are new alternatives being built. We could spend the rest of this call just talking about them and naming them. But So there's that going on. But at the same time, we're needing to tear down the old structure because it's destroying everything. And it's not enough to, to ask politely in a lot of cases that it stop. Because as we're seeing in, in so many cases in the world, people don't stop until they have to. So people are in positions of power. It's just they don't say, hey, would you please be less terrible? And they say, oh, sorry, I didn't realize I was being terrible. I will, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll set aside my personal agenda to make a fortune and it never happened. So we're trying to create something new. We're trying to tear down something old. And we're all in the middle of that, trying to sustain ourselves. Yeah. So it's just an immense moment. And I think it's good to just probably position ourselves properly in that, that that's where we are. Yes, it's that big. Yes, it's that overwhelming. And it's easy to make that all personal, as if mm-hmm. you're the only one, that it's something inside of you. But it's not that. It's something you're inside of. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, there's definitely that much bigger context that we and culture we're part of. But while at the same time, I always think about focusing on the little piece that I can. I'll never forget years and years and years ago running a workshop and having somebody on it. It was a self-esteem workshop, but this particular participant was absolutely devastated by the Mm. fact that we were in Iraq bombing. I mean, she was crying her eyes out. And I'd said, well, what specifically is it about? And she said, there's nothing I can do can stop what's happening to those poor people. And she had done a lot. She had done a lot to try Mm. and stop. And the conversation we came around to was, well, let's focus on what you can do. Focus on that and look at how we can become more influential in what we do every day. And if part of that is taking small steps, but doing something consist a small thing consistently every day, it will make a difference. It might just not solve everything in the way we might hope, but we can make a difference. 
Yeah. Amen. Amen yeah. to that. It's a complicated time because it feels like there's got to be room for the heartbreak. There's got to be oh. room for, if there, there isn't a space for heartbreak on the altar, I'm not interested. There's got to be space to be totally shattered and undone. And yet we're still needed. Yeah, the world needs us so much. And especially for those of us who are in positions of privilege, those who don't have it. Yeah, we're deeply needed. And I think it's just possible to proceed needed and heartbroken at the same time. So what impact would you like to have in your community or in the world? Oh, man, I suppose there are different levels of it. And I don't suppose any of this is particularly original, honestly. A fairly classic trope of humanity, the deepest wounds are often a doorway to our truest niche. So all I can say is I know that when I was younger, I suffered a lot because of the kind of sales training I got into. And I don't want to see anyone have to suffer with that. I don't want to see anyone else have to feel like they have to become more plastic and fake and lose their sincerity and their what's genuine about them in order to make sales and, and sustain themselves. Because that was just so painful. It's so hard when you have that sense of there's a real innocence in you and it gets lost. And you can even maybe see it going, but you don't know an alternative. So in that respect, I hope that it's so. I hope that's something that I say might help people find a way to sustain themselves without selling their soul in that way. But increasingly, it all feels like a cultural conversation to me and less personal. It's just hard not to be staggered by what's happening in the world. And I find myself wondering often, how did we get here? How are we at this point? Ecosystems are collapsing. And I find myself with a particular draw also towards conversations with white people and white men around racism and around colonization. Because at least in North America, I don't know how it is in Edinburgh right now, but there's this terrifying rise of white supremacy, mm -hmm. white nationalism. And that has a very questionable understanding of history itself. It's a troubling time to be a white person because it feels like there's self-hatred everywhere. You either hate yourself as a white person, if you identify in that way, because you look around at what white people have done or what you imagine they've done, and that's terrifying. Or there's the white nationalism, which is seems to claim, especially in North America, and I don't know how it is in Europe, but it seems to claim this great pride of European genius and look at all the amazing things that white people have done, you know, Greece and Rome and the internet and cars and uh, et cetera. That's what they're really claiming. It's not their genuine ancestry. They're claiming empire. Yeah. They're claiming that thread from Greece to Rome to you know, Holland and Britain and Spain and all this to North America because most of their ancestors almost certainly were peasants. I would say in a lot of cases, probably 100% of their ancestors were peasants. But you never hear the white nationalists brag about their peasant ancestors, the kind of potatoes they grew and the delicious recipes they made and the handcrafts they did and their singing. And it's never that. It's always this empire. And so it's an unsettling thing to be seeing that on the rise uh, because it's this deep, in North America, whiteness is this deep amnesia that people claim it as who they are. But it's actually the thing that makes sure they never know who they are or where they came from. It's the thing, it's the chloroform that knocks you right out, culturally speaking. And so we've just got all these kind of orphan amnesiacs running around North America and with so much power. And that's just trouble and certainly unsettling for, it's unsettling for everybody, but terrifying for people of color as we see the rise of that. So I find myself anyways interested in what I can do to help break some of the spells culturally. I suppose it's, I was thinking about that actually when I was, in Europe this time of how so much of what I do functionally is it's a spell breaking function. 
that there are so many spells that people are under in sales and wider cultures. Some of them are come right from the sales industry, but you know, it's so many times people say, but shouldn't we, aren't people indecisive? Don't we have to push them a little bit? And so a lot of what I'm doing is contending with you know, these spells that people are under. And I feel like there's a similar thing going on for a lot of white men. There's just so many, it's an unbelievable number of spells of Western culture that we imagine are just normal. And that's how it is and how it couldn't be any other way. But even this idea of potential, that's just a very Western idea that you would look at a piece of land and just be like, what's the most I could possibly take from this piece of land in the shortest period of time? That's not a, a deeply human understanding of the world. No, not at all. Yeah. Not at all. So what inspired you to set up the local good? And actually, it might be worth just even just taking a, a minute or two to just explain to people what that is. <laughs> yeah. Well, years ago, I went to, gosh, it was over 10 years ago, I guess, this group called Bali, the Business Alliance for Local Living Economies. I think their website now is BeALocalist.org. And one of the fastest growing business networks in the world at the time, and it was just kind of a chamber of commerce for hippies, a chamber of commerce for local businesses, because we see this increase of, you know, where Walmart shows up in a town promising jobs. But part of what happens is they crush all the local businesses. And then you get a certain chunk of a dollar gets spent at Walmart, but then, I don't know, a certain percentage of that leaves the community forever because it goes to corporate headquarters, because their branding person, their accountant, their lawyers, except those dope people don't live in the city. So it's just this kind of drain that starts to happen. I was learning about that and becoming more passionate about supporting local businesses and independent businesses. So there was a network and there wasn't anything like that in Edmonton. So a few of us got together and it's like to start having conversations about this. Because there were a few things we noticed. So many people up to so many good things in town and so few opportunities for them to get together and meet. Often they didn't even know about each other, which was crazy. So we sort of just put the word out through the grapevine that we're thinking about, could we create some sort of a network like this? Because there wasn't anything that was focused on that. And, you know, because there were activist groups, but we were kind of looking at something that was more of a light green and with a local focus. So we had two meetings and the three agendas that came out of it was people really wanted a chance for capacity to organize together and kind of mobilize a chance to network and meet each other and education too chance to learn things. So what came out of that was a group called SAGE, S-A-G-E, which I can't even remember what it stands for, honestly. But it was an acronym of some sort, Sustainable Alberta Green Entrepreneurs, maybe. But then that got confusing because there's also a group in town called SAGE, which is an old folks home. <laughs> old folks. <laughs> so I talked to people say, oh, what's, what you do have this group SAGE. And they say, oh, I love your work. And I'd say, I, but I don't think that you do. <laughs> so anyways, we changed the name to eSAGE eventually, Edmontonian Supporting a Green Economy. And then that changed to the local good in, I think, 2012. But so it started, it's just the 10th anniversary. I was out of town and I missed it unbelievably. But Thursday night, there was a, the 10th anniversary party. So anyways, it changed over the years. We did a lot of workshops and teaching. And because part of what we saw was so many of these books that are written about how to green your lifestyle are from the States. And we knew there were so many people in Edmonton who knew how to do all the same things. So why not support them? So we did a lot of that. And, you know, it's things about how to green your home or you know, permaculture or alternative schooling, these sorts of topics. And it went really well. And then the whole business thing, somebody else started a network for local independent businesses. So we let that go. And we realized finally the thing that we were best at was bringing people together and kind of this networking. So there was one meeting where we realized someone attend doing the green drinks and green drinks actually started in England maybe 30, 40 years ago. They realized that the environmental scene was very fractured. You had the green academics and the green nonprofits, but none of them talking to each other. 
just everyone in their own silos, not out of animosity, just everyone busy. And so some genius, and I, to me, this is just the smartest response to it. Instead of saying, well, let's have a conference and look at a multi-sector analysis of how do we build bridges, you know, whatever. It was just like, why don't we just all get together for beers once a month? So it's now in over 650 cities around the world. And we started doing that in Edmonton. And anyways, we did a whole bunch of events that were trying to bring together good folks doing good things. Something called the Good 100 Experiment, where it was like a day-long or weekend version of that, where we brought together people who were just doing good in all sorts of ways locally for them to meet each other. Started a blog on social media, just with the intention that if somebody, let's say, were to move to Edmonton, I want to get involved, that they could, it would be easy, if not inevitable, that they would find what they're looking for. But also people in Edmonton who are kind of waking up from the slumber of the dominant culture. And what could I do? Because maybe not drawn to some radical activism, but what could I do? A network for that. And so we've hosted dozens and dozens of these events. And a lot of people have uh, gotten connected to really wonderful things in town because of it. So it's kind of this hub in Edmonton for good folks up to good things. Yeah, and I must admit, whenever I see you sharing things, I'm like, gosh, I wish I was over there. So one of these days, I might visit Edmonton and pop along. I would do it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's helped just, sometimes it's just nice to hear something different about a place that might uh-huh. not necessarily be on your radar. True. And now I have some very pleasant thoughts that I have about Edmonton, and it's, it is, it's on my radar. Just All because right. of what I've seen you share around that local, local good initiative. I'm going to hold you to this now. You said it. I have. So now I need to come over, don't I? Right. Okay. I'm going to set that intention open to all sorts of possibilities. (laughs) And you know, what's fascinating, I think, is that I know, I think I probably got to know you more through your marketing initially. And then, of course, connecting with you and seeing what you were doing personally. But when I think of you as a business leader in the marketing field and your personal view I see them as being one and the same. I see you as a guy who cares about social justice, the environment, community, people, heritage, many different things, good business ethic. To what extent do you think our personal values and how we act and who we are influences the way people perceive us as business owners or leaders? Well, I think it's actually, it's really big. I mean, there's all these studies done in the Lojas market a while ago, lifestyles of health and sustainability. I don't know what's happening with that these days, but one of the things they found was that there was this market segment, the Lojas segment of people who were into shopping green and local and that they would spend 10% more on the same product, basically, if it was more ethical. And they were, people are more loyal. I remember I was at a restaurant in Truro, Nova Scotia. It was like the only cool local restaurant. Everything else was, was chain Tim Hortons. But that's uh, probably a little unkind, but it, it was just it's such a, it definitely stood out in Truro. It was a very unique thing at the time. And they were trying to do something wonderful, local food, seasonal food, supporting local farmers. And the service was not good because they were totally understaffed at the time. But the response, because it was such a wonderful thing, I just remember I overheard one of the patrons say, could I volunteer here sometimes to help out? You seem so busy. <laughs> so you get that kind of response. You get this response of, uh, how can I help? What can I do? People are so much more forgiving. Years ago, I went down to San Francisco and there was a colleague who I met just via Facebook. We'd never met, but when we sat down to meet, he said, would you like to write a book together about green business? And that was entirely based on what I was posting. And what I was posting on social media was not just promo. In fact, promo was maybe 5% of what I post, but most of what I was posting was just about what I cared about in the world. So I think when people see it as entrepreneurs or businesses, when it's all self-promotion, just from an efficacy standpoint, it just doesn't work that well. 
because people tune it. If you give money to a nonprofit and then they ask you for more money, you give more money and then they ask you for more. And every time you hear about from them, the only time you hear from them is when they're asking for more money, people start to tune it out. And if the only thing that they get from you is sign up for this thing and everything costs money, yeah, there is a certain point where people tune out. And so, of course, I mean, that there's a conversation about making sure that what you're sharing has value for people and is useful and helpful for them and whatever it is that they came to you for. So if you help people with migraines, well then, hey, here's a quick little massage, self-massage tip for your migraines. That's going to be valuable. But also, I know so many colleagues who have some trust in me. And it, partly it's what I talk about marketing-wise, but there's also so much of it. They just see when I follow Ted on social media, he's primarily posting about things that are happening in the world and a certain worldview that I share. Gives you a deeper trust because, oh, this is a real person who's in it for the real reasons. And it seems to be very true that if you're up to something good in the world and your intentions are good, you're really in business for the right reasons. People are so supportive. People are so willing to show up. It's not always money. How many events have I been to? Maybe you've had the same thing where the event is full, but then they see me and they say, Tet, no, you come in. Mm-hmm. Or people just showing up and helping out or being more willing to spread the word on my events. That kind of thing happens all the time. You get people wanting to show up and support you. You know, there's a store in town, Earth General Store, and they had a location downtown and the location just was bad. So it didn't end up working out. They were there for a few years and then they had just recently had to shut down and stick with the one location they already had. But they're so loved that when they put out the call for help, people showed up. And part of one of the things we do with the local good is this thing called cash mobs. And the cash mobs is the idea where you show up street corner with a $20 bill cloth grocery bag. And you don't know which business you're going to be mobbing, but all of you as a group with some cash mob protest signs show up to a particular local. And of course, once you know the location, you have a sense of what business it probably is. But you all just mob it with cash because these entrepreneurs, it's exposure is nice. Uh, they need money. Wonderful. Yeah. And so, so you often end up spending more. But with the Earth General Store, they're just up to such good things. We did three cash mobs over the years for them. Uh, wow, so, I love that. A cash mob. <laughs> yeah, it's a beautiful thing. You show up, you meet some people who are up to good things. It's a very uh, thin edge of the wedge in terms of social change because everyone gets spending money at businesses. So you just show up and you get to buy something. You support a local business. You hear some of the story about that business. Maybe people go for drinks after chat. But it's, yeah, it's, it's a wonderful, very simple, scalable thing that people can do to support independent businesses. The Earth General Store, that's the only one we did three times. The only one we would probably imagine ever doing twice because we know he's up to something so good. The difference between a status and stature too, you know, you can get high status just by being famous, but that's not stature. Kim Kardashian has status, but Mother Teresa or Princess Diana or that's stature. Yeah, and, that is and, a wonderful distinction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess there's a couple of threads coming out of that. And one of them is about connection, you know, both in terms of we do tend to connect much much deeper level when we have shared values and the, the more values that we have that are shared but also the importance of connecting with something that we care about but connecting mm-hmm. with others and the importance of alignment actually well, well, and very much that alignment has to be there or people see through it totally well and i was just going to say you know that there's a restaurant in town called three boars and when you come to edmonton we'll go there but <laughs> it's a it's a local food restaurant one of these restaurants where I became friends with a lot of people who owned it and the cooks got to know them. So every time I ate there, number one, I was supporting them and I like them. 
and they're the kind of people that you know get to know the farmers by name. And so I'm also supporting all these local farmers every time I eat there. I'm supporting an independent business. I'm supporting the local food scene. So you know, I'd spend one dollar, and that dollar does so many things. So I think people are kind of looking for more bang for their buck in that, where it's like, yeah, I could spend this dollar. I'll get what I want at the basic level at all of these places. But if I spend it here, not only do I get what I want, but it helps other people. So I think increasingly, if people are given the choice, spend money and you get this regular coffee versus you can get this coffee that is really doing something, company that's doing something wonderful in that place. And it's not that much more expensive or it's the same price. I mean, if it was the same price, who wouldn't? Most people, as long as it maybe taste is the same or they're going to want to do that. And yeah, what you're saying about alignment, because there's something particularly unsettling when the rhetoric is, yes, values, 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 but the behavior isn't that. It's more unsettling. You know, it's, it's like, it's more disturbing. But if there's a guy at the bar who's just a creepy guy and everyone knows he's the creepy guy, you just know to stay away from him. <laughs> and that's just who he is. And when he behaves that way, it's upsetting, but it's kind of just par for the course. But when there's somebody who positions himself as a really good guy... And then does the same thing. It's more upsetting. And when a business is positioning themselves as really eco-friendly and socially minded, and then you find out behind the scenes they're not that at all, there's a betrayal in it that deeply affects people. And so in my scene, there's this whole, you know, kind of heart-centered business, conscious business. And yet what I've seen is a lot, there are a number of people who, what they teach in sales is functionally the same stuff that I learned 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. It's gussied up. They use the word heart more <laughs> and connection and all this. But I remember looking at an ebook that a colleague of mine had written about five ways to sort of overcome objections. But I was like, even this idea of overcoming objections is that's the old thing. Yeah. And so it's really heartbreaking for people when they sign up for something that's a spiritual heart-based marketing. Everything that they learn in it is more of the same. There's this kind of feeling of betrayal. So yeah, just amen. There's got to be the alignment. Yeah, totally. And what you just talked about is so true because so many people do, you know, they go away, they want to learn how to do things well and in a way that is respectful to others and kind and loving and generous. And they're taught by people who do say that they're teaching them all the good ways of doing things. So they think that that's the norm. And I think that's where your work Uh was so refreshing. Oh my God. Mm. And I said that recently when we saw each other in Edinburgh about it was just that, thank God, this is what it's about. I don't have to try to be somebody else. This mm. is just it. I am. I'm full of gratitude for what you've shared with me and many, many others and lots of people mm. in my community as well. For you having the courage, because I think this takes in all of us, it's the courage that if we want to live in a different world, if we want things to be different, we have to have the courage to stand up for what we think, feel is right and to say no to the things that don't feel right. And that can be hard when we run our own businesses and when there is a pressure on us financially. But one of the reasons I'm now doing what I'm doing is that I thought I used to have to keep that good part of me separate from my business. And then, of course, I discovered that no, by supporting charities and social causes in various, various different ways, I can bring that into my business as well as many other ways to have positive impact. That was a relief too. Just because we're in business, it doesn't mean that we can't do good. And actually, when you focus on doing good, you're going to build a brand that is actually more meaningful. And it's easier to be sustainable when you don't have that inner conflict happening. Amen. Amen. So, oh, Tad, I could just continue to speak to you for hours, but I'm watching the time. I want to respect your time. And maybe we just have to have another conversation once when we're sitting in that restaurant in Edmonton. (laughs) (laughs) 
Good deal. <laughs> but one last question I really would love yeah. to hear your views on, because I do teach people to support charities and social causes through their business and how to grow their business in that respect. What are your views on authentically incorporating charitable giving into our business or marketing? It's not something I've done directly. I suppose instead of giving money, I volunteered the local good, I, I really basically never got paid for nine years. So that's the way I've done it. But I think it's a beautiful thing when people can know that, oh, I support this business. I'm also supporting this cause. Yeah, I'm a fan when people do it well. You know, I was just at this networking event down in Santa Cruz, California. One of the women was standing up and I can't remember if she shared or someone else shared, but, you know, they'd raised $10,000 for the Achuar people down in, in Ecuador. And she'd actually gone down there to visit them and meet them, was able to share a story. And it certainly increased her stature in my eyes. And when I see that people are about something bigger than themselves, I just feel much more interested in supporting them or partnering with them. You know, it's like given a choice. Well, all things being equal, I'd rather support them. I don't feel like you're the one I'd refer to around that uh, when people are are struggling with that. So I, I don't know if I have too much to say, but I admire it when I see it. It's interesting because actually... I think it comes back because your business is so aligned to who you are as an individual. To some extent, you're already doing it naturally. Mm. And I'll never forget one uh, the very first time we spoke to each other, actually, which was before we recorded the Gift to Profit interview for the summit. And I can remember, you know, I wanted to be a fundraising summit. And you said something yeah. along the lines of, how about you give the speakers a choice of which charity some of the money goes to mm. or which cause and I hadn't thought of that at that point. But as soon as you said it, I was like, absolutely. And that completely, so you were supporting causes there because you were volunteering off time, sure, sure. Yeah, you know, yeah. and there was money raised for the cause that put forward. And actually you have influenced one of the ways in which hmm. you do things as well. So there's another ripple effect there. This has just been a wonderful conversation. If people want to get hold of you and check out what you do, where's the best place for them to contact you? I will, of course, have show notes and things, but just in case sure. anybody's listening to this. Yeah, well, they can go to marketingforhippies.com. That's probably the main place if they want to learn about the marketing work. And if they're interested in the conversations, or I was talking about racism and, and all that, uh, there's a Facebook page called, uh, it's facebook.com slash dear white men. So uh, they can check that out. But marketingforhippies.com has most of my stuff on it. Fantastic. Great. Well, listen, thank you so much. It's been an absolute joy speaking to you as always. And thank you very much. I'm taking away, I've got all sorts of notes and scribbles and pictures all over the place on my notes here. And from the Highland clearances, which I just hadn't anticipated our conversation going there, but that was beautiful, Mm. you know, for that connection to be there. To breaking spells with people who are under the many spells we have in Mm. Western culture. So thank you so much for sharing everything. And if there was one last thing that you were to share with our listeners, what would it be? Go buy Allison's book. It's great. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. So thank you very much. And thank you to all our listeners too. Thank you for tuning in. Remember to check out the show notes for the show at givetoprofit.com or allison.com. And that's where you'll find details of how to connect with us both too. Until next time, remember that business is a great opportunity to be kind. Thanks for listening to the Gift to Profit podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe to the show on iTunes so you hear about our next episodes. It would be great if you left a rating and review of the show there too. For every review this month, Alison will be sponsoring a child to go to school for a day in Cambodia. 
You can connect and chat with Alison on Twitter using the handle at Alison Mac and through the Give to Profit Facebook fan page. And if you don't already have a copy of Alison's best-selling book, Gift to Profit, How to Grow Your Business by Supporting Charities and Social Causes, you can get this on Amazon around the world. <music>